Hello, welcome to the August 2013 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Moore. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Prospective, non-randomized crossover pilot study, Keir and colleagues enrolled 10 intubated pediatric subjects with lung injury who sequentially underwent a period of observation, a sustained inflation maneuver of 40 centimeters water for 40 seconds and open lung ventilation, a staircase recruitment strategy, a downwards PEEP titration, and a one-hour period of observation with PEEP set at 2 centimeters water above closing PEEP. Arterial blood gases, lung mechanics, hemodynamics, and functional residual capacity were recorded following each step of the study and following each increment of the staircase recruitment strategy. Both sustained inflation and staircase recruitment strategies were effective in raising PaO2 and functional residual capacity. During the staircase recruitment strategy maneuver, the authors noted significant increases in dead space ventilation, a decrease in CO2 elimination, an increase in PaCO2, and a decrease in compliance of the respiratory system. Lung recruitment was not sustained following the decremental PEEP titration. The authors conclude that a staircase recruitment strategy is effective in opening the lungs of children with early acute lung injury and is hemodynamically well tolerated. However, attention must be paid to PaCO2 during the staircase recruitment strategy. Even minutes following lung recruitment, lungs may de-recruit when PEEP is lowered beyond the closing pressure. There continues to be much clinical interest in the use of recruitment maneuvers in patients with ARDS. The authors of this study compared two commonly used lung recruitment maneuvers and found that a staircase recruitment strategy was effective in alveolar recruitment and was well tolerated hemodynamically. However, during this recruitment maneuver, they noted significant potentially detrimental increases in dead space ventilation, decreases in CO2 elimination, increases in PaCO2, and decreases in respiratory system compliance. Within minutes following lung recruitment, derecruitment occurred when PEEP was decreased below the closing pressure, as pointed out by Shepard and Brilly. Before such a strategy can be part of routine clinical practice, a larger randomized controlled trial with a patient-important outcome is necessary. The aim of the report by Redder et al. was to describe a series of patients bridged to lung transplant with extracorporeal membrane oxygenation and examine the potential impact of active rehabilitation and ambulation during pre-transplant ECMO. This retrospective case series reviews all patients bridged to lung transplantation with ECMO at a single tertiary care lung transplant center. Pre-transplant ECMO patients receiving active rehabilitation and ambulation were compared to those patients who were bridged with ECMO but did not receive pre-transplant rehabilitation. Nine consecutive subjects between April 2007 and May 2012 were identified for inclusion. One-year survival for all subjects was 100%, with one subject alive at four months post-transplant. The five subjects participating in pre-transplant rehabilitation had shorter mean post-transplant mechanical ventilation and hospital stay. 
No subjects who participated in active rehabilitation had post-transplant myopathy, compared to three of four subjects who did not participate in pre-transplant rehabilitation on ECMO. The authors conclude that bridging selected critically ill patients to transplant with ECMO is a viable treatment option and active participation in physical therapy, including ambulation, may provide a more rapid post-transplantation recovery. Pre-transplant deconditioning has a significant impact on outcomes for all lung transplant patients and is likely a major contributor to increased mortality in critically ill lung transplant recipients. Ryder and colleagues found that bridging selected critically ill patients to transplant with ECMO is a viable treatment option and active participation in physical therapy, including ambulation, may provide a more rapid post-transplantation recovery. This strategy requires further study to fully evaluate potential benefits and risks. As stated by Hudson and Fan, this study helps to build the case for awake and ambulatory ECMO as a safe and feasible option for pre-transplant rehabilitation as a bridge to transplant and recovery. Tremblay and colleagues assessed whether smoking cessation counseling practices and related psychosocial characteristics among respiratory therapists improved between 2005 and 2010. Data were collected in mailed self-report questionnaires in 2005 and in 2010 in random independent samples of active licensed RTs in Quebec, Canada. The response proportion was 68% in 2005 and 60% in 2010. There were no substantial differences in mean cessation counseling scores according to year of survey. RTs who reported that they had received cessation counseling training during their studies or after their studies had statistically significant better counseling practices for both patients ready and patients not ready to quit than untrained RTs. In addition, their self-efficacy to provide effective counseling was higher and they perceived fewer knowledge-related barriers to cessation. Further, RTs trained after their studies perceived fewer patient-related and time barriers to cessation counseling and had better knowledge of community resources. The authors conclude that although the proportion of RTs trained in smoking cessation counseling during and after studies increased between 2005 and 2010, sustained efforts are needed to increase the number of trained RTs so that this translates into positive observable changes in counseling practices. Tremblay et al. found that the proportion of RTs trained in smoking cessation counseling during and after their formal training increased between 2005 and 2010. However, sustained efforts are needed to increase the number of RTs trained in this practice. Boone correctly points out that there are many reasons why respiratory therapists should embrace the role of smoking cessation specialist. In their study, Huang and Yu assessed the predictive value of usual variables for extubation outcome of patients receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation. 
From 2005 to 2007, intubated patients who were admitted to the Intermediate Respiratory Care Unit had been on mechanical ventilation for at least 21 days or more at the time of admission and underwent extubation after successful spontaneous breathing trials were included. Comparisons between subjects with successful extubation and failed extubation in terms of weaning parameters and clinical predictors of extubation outcome were performed. Also, one-year survival of subjects with regard to extubation outcome was analyzed. 24% of 119 subjects receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation required reintubation within seven days. Multivariate logistic regression analysis demonstrated that only variable associated with extubation failure was ineffective cough. Possessing two or more acceptable weaning parameters was not helpful in predicting extubation outcome. Subjects with failed extubation had worse one-year survival compared with those with successful extubation. The authors conclude that, in patients receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation who tolerated a spontaneous breathing trial and were ready to extubate, ineffective cough was the best predictor of extubation failure. This study assessed the predictive value of usual parameters for extubation outcome in patients receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation. In this population of patients who tolerate spontaneous breathing trials and are ready for extubation, ineffective cough was the best predictor of extubation failure. Because extubation failure was associated with mortality, management strategies need to be developed to prevent extubation failure. Tonellier et al. evaluated the influence of nebulization and active humidification on the resistance of expiratory filters. A respiratory system analog was constructed using a test lung, an ICU ventilator, heated humidifiers, and a piezoelectric nebulizer. Humidifiers were connected to different types of circuits. Five filter types were evaluated, electrostatic, heat and moisture exchanger, standard, specific and internal heated high-efficiency particulate air filter. Baseline characteristics were obtained from each dry filter. Differential pressure measurements were carried out after 24 hours of continuous in vitro use for each condition and after 24 hours of use with an old generation biheated circuit without nebulization. When using unheated circuits, measurements had to be interrupted before 24 hours for all the filtering devices except the internal heated HEPA filter. The heat and moisture exchangers occluded before 24 hours with the unheated and monoheated circuits. The circuit type, nebulization practice, and duration of use did not influence the internal heated HEPA filter resistance. The authors concluded that expiratory limb filtration is likely to induce several major adverse events. Expiratory filter resistance increase is mainly due to the humidification circuit type rather than to nebulization. If filtration is mandatory while using an unheated circuit, a dedicated filter should be used for no more than 24 hours or a heated HEPA for a longer duration. Filtering devices are used during mechanical ventilation to avoid dysfunction of flow and pressure transducers or for airborne microorganism containment. In this study, the authors found that expiratory limb filtration is likely to increase expiratory filter resistance due to the humidification circuit type rather than due to nebulization. 
If filtration is needed when using an unheated circuit, the filter should be used for less than or equal to 24 hours unless a heated HEPA filter is used. The study by Delweg et al. had two objectives. First, to develop a system that samples air from the nasal cavity and analyzes the humidity of these samples. Second, to investigate nasal humidity during pre-nasal and intranasal oxygen application with and without humidification. They first developed and validated a sampling and analysis system to measure humidity from air samples. By means of this system, they measured inspiratory air samples from 12 subjects who received nasal oxygen with an intranasal and pre-nasal cannula at different flows, with and without humidification. The sampling and analysis system showed good correlation to a standard hygrometer within the tested humidity range. In the subjects, intranasal humidity dropped significantly when oxygen was given intranasally without humidification. There was no significant change in airway humidity when oxygen was given prenasally without humidification. With the addition of humidification, there was no significant change in humidity at any flow and independent of pre- or intranasal oxygen administration. The authors conclude that prenasal administration of dry oxygen achieves similar levels of intranasal humidity as intranasal administration in combination with a bubble-through humidifier. Oxygen therapy may be combined with a humidification device to prevent mucosal dryness. Depending on the cannula design, oxygen can be administered pre- or intranasally. The study by Delwick and colleagues is interesting in that they found that pre-nasal administration of dry oxygen achieves levels of intranasal humidity similar to those achieved by intranasal administration in combination with a bubble-through humidifier. Pre-nasal oxygen simplifies application and may reduce therapy cost. The study by Golby et al. was designed to assess if other variables measured during the six-minute walk test, like continuous oximetry recording, offered additional prognostic information. This was a retrospective analysis of prospectively collected data. 104 COPD patients were studied. The six-minute walk test was performed in all cases. The six-minute walk test work was calculated as body weight times distance walked. Receiver operating characteristic curves were used to assess the value of variables to predict mortality. Additional analysis was performed using Kapler-Meyer survival plots and Cox proportional hazards regression models. Mean follow-up was at 590 days. The six-minute walk test work was not better than distance walked to predict mortality. Subjects who died had more dyspnea after the six-minute walk test, lower baseline SpO2, worse oxygen saturation during the six-minute walk test, and walked less distance. On multivariate analysis, only the six-minute walk test distance and dyspnea after the test correlated independently with mortality. The six-minute walk test work was not more useful than the six-minute walk test distance to predict mortality. 
distance walk during the six-minute walk test predicts mortality in COPD, but body weight might also affect the work required to walk. Interestingly, these authors found that six-minute walk test work, which accounts for the weight of the patient, was not more useful than six-minute walk test distance to predict mortality. This study confirms that six-minute walk test distance and dyspnea on exertion are key elements in prognostic evaluation in COPD, while the value of exercise oxygen desaturation is less clear. The objective of the study by Kosich and colleagues was to assess the bronchial lumen and wall dimensions in asthma and COPD patients in relation to disease severity and to compare the airway dimensions in patients with asthma and COPD. 10 asthma subjects and 12 COPD subjects with stable, mild to moderate disease were investigated. All subjects underwent chest high-resolution CT. Cross-sections of bronchi with an external diameter of 1 to 5 millimeters were identified on enlarged images. The following variables were measured, external and internal diameter, wall area, lumen area, total airway area, the percentage of airway wall area, wall thickness, and the ratio of wall thickness to external diameter. Separate sub-analyses were performed for airways with external diameters less than or equal to 2 mm and external diameters greater than 2 mm. The authors measured 261 and 348 cross-sections of small airways in subjects with asthma and COPD, respectively. There was a significant difference in wall thickness and wall area, which are both greater in asthmatics than in COPD patients. In bronchi with external diameters greater than 2 mm, all measured parameters were significantly higher in asthma than COPD. In individual asthmatics, the airway wall thickness was similar in the assessed bronchi, while in COPD it was related to the external airway diameter. The authors conclude that bronchial walls are thicker in asthmatics than in patients with COPD. It seems that airway wall thickness and the lumen diameter in patients with asthma are related to disease severity, but there is no such relationship in COPD patients. These authors assessed the bronchial lumen and wall dimensions in patients with asthma and COPD. Their results indicate that bronchial walls are thicker in asthmatics than in patients with COPD. This suggests that high-resolution computed tomography may be a useful tool in the assessment of airway structure in obstructive lung disease. This is worthy of further study. the study by Chiang et al. was to assess the relationships among polymorphisms, clinical phenotypes, and the serum levels of transforming growth factor beta-1, or TGF-beta-1, and tumor necrosis factor alpha, or TNF-alpha. Polymorphisms of promoter of TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha in 217 asthmatic patients and 110 healthy controls were evaluated. Pulmonary function, total immunoglobin E, specific IgE antibodies, total eosinophil counts, TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha were assessed. The genetic polymorphisms of TGF-beta-1 promoter and TNF-alpha were significantly associated with asthma.
Subjects with more severe asthma had a higher serum levels of TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha. In asthmatic subjects, the TGF-beta-1 of atopic subjects was higher than those without atopy. All studied subjects were divided into four groups by mean value of TGF-beta-1 or TNF-alpha. The high values of TGF-beta-1 or TNF-alpha were defined by higher than the mean values of the studied subjects of TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha. The FEV1 of the group with high TGF-beta-1 plus low TNF-alpha was lower than that in the group with low TGF-beta-1 plus low TNF-alpha. The lowest FEV1 was in the group with high TNF-alpha and high TGF-beta-1. The authors conclude that genetic polymorphisms of TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha are associated with asthma. The role of TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha in asthma is unclear. These authors assess the relationships among polymorphisms, clinical phenotypes, and serum levels of TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha. They found that the genetic polymorphisms of TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha are associated with asthma. TGF-beta-1 modulates atopy. Of interest, both TGF-beta-1 and TNF-alpha modulate clinical severity and airway obstruction in an additive manner. The study by Song and colleagues describes the self-expanding endobronchial occluder as utilized in bronchoscopic lung volume reduction with a 36-month follow-up procedure. 23 subjects with severe emphysema were recruited and underwent flexible bronchoscopic placement of self-expanding endobronchial occluders. Outcomes were assessed at 1 week, 1 month, 3, 6, 12, 24, and 36 month intervals, including the feasibility, safety, and efficacy, which contained pulmonary function testing, 6-minute walk test, dyspnea score, Bode index, and St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. 58 self-expanding endobronchial occluders were implanted into 23 lobes previously selected. No displacement was found during follow-up. Five subjects experienced post-operative complications of cough, and six subjects had lobar pneumonia, which was not located in any of the blocked segments. The FEV1 in 18 subjects was improved by greater than 15% compared with baselines, and the mean first efficacy time and maximal efficacy time were 5.65 months and 6.35 months respectively. The mean baseline diffusing capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide, DLCO, significantly increased over the 12-month period. No significant changes were observed in FVC or the ratio of residual volume to TLC. The 6-minute walk distance, dyspnea score, and St. George Respiratory Questionnaire total score were improved in 22 subjects over a 24-month period, and a minority of subjects continued to improve until the end of the study. Mean baseline Bode index had improved during follow-up, but not at the study's conclusion. This preliminary study demonstrates early significant improvements in pulmonary function, 6-minute walk distance, dyspnea score, Bode index, quality of life, and ease of placement and acceptable safety post-bronchoscopic lung volume reduction with self-expanding endobronchial occluders. But the initial improvements were only maintained the long term for a minority of subjects. 
The paper by Sung et al. describes the use of a self-expanding endobronchial occluder and bronchoscopic lung volume reduction. The placement of this device was easy and safe. Although the results of this study demonstrate early significant improvements in a number of outcomes, the initial improvements were maintained long-term for only a minority of subjects. Paisani et al. compared the effects of volume-oriented and flow-oriented incentive spirometry on thoracoabdominal mechanics and respiratory muscle activity in healthy volunteers. This cross-sectional trial enrolled 20 subjects. All subjects performed 8 quiet breaths and 8 deep breaths with volume-oriented and flow-oriented incentive spirometers in a randomized order. They measured thoracoabdominal chest wall, upper and lower ribcage, and abdominal volumes with optoelectronic plethysmography and the muscle activity of the sternocleidomastoid and superior and inferior intercostal muscles with electromyography. Volume-oriented incentive spirometry increased chest wall volume more than did flow-oriented incentive spirometry and induced a larger increase in the upper and lower ribcages and abdomen. By contrast, flow-oriented incentive spirometry induced more activity in the accessory muscles of respiration than did volume-oriented incentive spirometry. The authors conclude that volume-oriented incentive spirometry promotes a greater increase in chest wall volume with a larger abdominal contribution and lower respiratory muscle activity than does flow-oriented incentive spirometry in healthy adults. These authors found that volume-oriented incentive spirometry was found to promote a greater increase in chest wall volume than flow-oriented incentive spirometry. Although these are interesting findings, the more important question might be, does incentive spirometry provide any clinical benefit for our patients? This month, we are pleased to publish the paper by NAVA from the 39th Donald F. Egan Scientific Memorial Lecture, Behind a Mask, Tricks, Pitfalls, and Prejudices for Non-Invasive Ventilation. We are equally pleased to publish the paper by Myers from the 28th Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture, Thinking Outside the Box, Moving the Respiratory Care Profession Beyond the Hospital Walls. We also publish case reports dealing with pulmonary hypertension and COPD, endobronchial malignant fibrous histiocytoma, and endobronchial mass lesion. Our teaching case deals with primary ciliary dyskinesia. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.